I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm sitting down with Singaporean designer Colin Sierra of Ministry of Design. So, Colin, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. It's great to see you again, Susie. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, it, it is. I, I was actually thinking back uh, to when we first met, which I'm, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think was in Tokyo for the Cure Project, which That's was right. 2016. You were a very welcome face in the sea of strangers that <laughs> you were surrounded by. <laughs> oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> yes. I think that was the trip that I also met Mansum from Woha, actually, right. for the first time. So that's that was right. a fun trip, but gosh, such a long time ago now, it seems. Especially um, with um, all this memories of travel yes. making it so painfully obvious that we can't yes <laughs> yeah. indeed i won't tease you too much with those <laughs> thoughts <laughs> but it was good good memories and a very fun project as well yeah um, yeah. yeah so i mean yeah clearly that was a, that was quite a while ago how has this year been for you and joy and the team at ministry of design yeah well that is the million dollar question isn't it and I mean, where do you even begin answering a question like that? Because this year has been so topsy-turvy, unpredictable. Uh, We geared ourselves up for the very worst, you know, at the start of the pandemic, not knowing how bad it would be. And then as things calmed down and, you know, we got into a rhythm of not just working in this strange new uh, manner, but also, you know, anticipating would jobs continue, would they pause? We're working in an industry which is very sensitive to how the economy is doing. We, we do hotels, we do um, developer work, and that's very market-driven. Um, so with the lack of travel, we were concerned, clearly. But in a nutshell, thank God, <laughs> <laughs> we've made it through the, the end of the tunnel. Um, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We, the great news is the, the team has made it through completely intact. We haven't lost anybody. That's amazing. Yeah, we've managed to you know, um, keep everyone going. Uh, there were a couple of projects that unfortunately fell victim to COVID. In some ways, sometimes indirectly, we had a few projects, hotel projects, where the clients were, their primary industry wasn't in hotels and their primary industries were affected very badly by COVID and they had to regroup and sort of consolidate their resources and you know pause things that were sort of extracurricular for them. Mm. So you know a couple of projects paused. We we hope they will pick up again. Uh, but enough went through to keep us keep us going. Uh, and in fact, oddly enough, it's been a kind of like a bumper year in terms of rolling out projects because usually our projects are not small scale and they take time to fruit. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we see you know, years between you know, things that we can unveil. But this year we've had a few uh, unveil, something, some smaller like the Canvas House, but some much larger um, 
the, this wealth management center that we've just finished in our own backyard in Singapore for Citibank, and, and that's turned out really nice. So we were, we we're thankful. I think we we're really just, um, in summary, we're thankful. Uh, we know not everyone has had an easy time, and even our team members, I think the psychological health is mm. one thing that doesn't get addressed so much. We all worry about bottom lines, but there's also a bottom line when it comes to how people are feeling. Mm. Um, so we've had to pay particular care for team members who may um, have struggled through this difficult time, uh, either in obvious ways, like for instance, you know, if you're in a home where there are more than one, in the, there's more than one individual working, then you already have this sort of density uh, and you get into each other's hair and you're yeah. there 24-7. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The mental health uh, aspect of, of, and the, uh, the toll that that has potentially taken on all of us, I think, mm. is something that really isn't being talked about. And um, So we're recording this in December and I, I don't know about you, but I really feel like there is this collective anticipated sigh of relief that we made it through. Yes. You know, there's only a couple of weeks yes. left and... You know, I'm not suggesting that 2021 is magically going to be better, but I do feel like there is a sense of achievement that, you know, we got through the year and, and you've yes. accomplished holding on to your team. I mean, that is not an insignificant accomplishment. That was one of our... I mean, thanks, Susie. I mean, you've, you've summarised it so eloquently. It's, it's a step-by-step thankfulness, right? We don't know what the future steps are, but we have to be thankful for the steps we have taken to get here. Um, it's no guarantee of a rosy future, but we know we have, we, have, we have survived to fight another day. And one of the key objectives was to retain the team. Uh, that was one of the key objectives this year and make sure everyone had a livelihood. Uh, we heard of many stories of uh, either related industries or even in other industries, obviously, where friends and, and people we knew running businesses were really getting hit hard. So we were very thankful. Yeah. And of course, being a responsible business, we had over the years accumulated some kind of a reserve, which we, you know, we were watching very closely. Do we, do we start tapping into that? You know, when do we release funds if needed? Um, and how long can you release funds to keep you, yourself afloat if you know, projects don't come in? But thankfully, we didn't have to answer any of those hard questions. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> we are very thankful. God's been good. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that I want to talk to you about today, um, cool. but I actually really want to go back to the very beginning and, and sort of and where it all started. Did you have, you know, like one of those aha moments that you knew you wanted to be a designer or was it a sort of a slow process, do you think, of realising what your career path would be? Oh, that, well, that's a, I, it's a fantastic question because it, it, it forces you to look back at your trajectory and not take it for granted. Um, you know, for me, it was an aha moment. There was a distinct aha moment. And prior to that moment, I was exploring um, other th- I was exploring everything else besides hardcore design. So being the sort of good Singaporean that I am, I was <laughs> trained to, <laughs> to focus on, you know, practical industries. Um, and schooling also prepared you only for those things. Uh, but there was always this inherent, I guess, desire to create, but I just didn't know in what shape or form. Um, So after school, after the army, you know, the mandatory Mm. two and a half years, 
that makes a boy a man. <laughs> in Singapore, at least. In Singapore, at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a bit of soul searching. And my parents were, well, thankfully, being the third child, there was not much pressure to to succeed. I think if my, my, if my if I didn't end up a drug addict or did in an alley, <laughs> my, my mother would have, she was overjoyed already. <laughs> so there, there wasn't a heck of a lot to live up to. My, my other siblings had taken the heat off me. So when it came to, to my turn, um, they were willing to sort of, you know, let me cut me some slack, let, give me time to, to digest. And um, after the army, I kind of sort of hovered around the creative field, really not knowing what I was going to do. So I, I was a fashion photographer's apprentice for a few, for a few um, seasons. Uh, and that was really fun. Uh, being surrounded by six foot five <laughs> human, <laughs> perfect human examples, <laughs> making me feel very a small. A little intimidating, indeed. yeah. Totally, yeah. Uh, that was really fun. And I really enjoyed it, creating moments, creating scenes, setting dioramas, you know, to capture. Uh, but I found it a bit frustrating because we worked so hard to create this very lively, animated moment. But it would eventually, the end product would hang on a wall or sit on a page or on a screen, and you couldn't really, you couldn't involve yourself in it. It was sort of static. And even though it was for people to experience, they experienced it only with their eyes. And I found that rather limiting. I wanted almost to find a way for people to walk into the image, to be part of the scene that I created, but you couldn't do that. So there was a bit of frustration there. Um, and at the same time, simultaneously, I was quite involved in theater, not, not in, not in um, not as a as a front of house person, but I, I wasn't doing any acting, but I was doing directing and also stage design, uh, set design, and that was, in a way, it satisfied the the desire to involve the audience and the spectator into the equation, right? Draw them in. Mm. As I was involved in a lot of black box theatre, so that was very close quarters. You'd see spit flying from the actors' <laughs> mouths. Very not, intimate. Not very COVID-friendly. <laughs> <laughs> but the sets were, were um, enthralling and it would draw people in. But the problem was that theatre is for a moment. It's for two hours. It's for three week run of a, of a, of a production. And then they would do this like, off, this terrible drop from a super high to this like crash of an emotional low because it was all gone in a, in a snap of your fingers. It was ephemeral almost. So on the one hand, photography was two dimensional, not being able to immerse. On the other hand, theater was immersive but temporal. So I was like, oh, neither, of, neither of these are satisfying. And I was really struggling. This was a year and a half, almost two years into sort of my exploratory stage. And I think, you know, my, I couldn't live rent-free in my parents' home forever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one day, literally one day, I have no idea how it happened. I was in the shower and as epiphanies go, it was just like that. And suddenly there was this light bulb moment where somehow I said, hey, architecture seems to pr provide an answer to all of these desires, something permanent, well, at least as permanent as design gets, mm. something that's immersive, something that um, is interactive, something that is still about creating an experience that's narrative-driven, um, it's about compositions, everything I loved rolled into one. And so I, I was over the moon with this this revelation, and I, I, I mentioned it to my father, and he kind of looked at me dumbfounded for, for one minute, because I. 
I never mentioned this before, and it's it's not a small undertaking. Mm. You don't go for a summer school and come no. out an architect. You <laughs> no, know? certainly not. Of all the creative professions exactly. to pursue, yeah. yeah. So anyhow, uh, I I I then um, that that was the beginning, and then I became wow. an architect after school, worked and you know abroad some, and then returned to Singapore. So I wanted to talk to you a bit about that experience working abroad because I believe you spent some time working with Rem Koolhaas and Daniel Lieberskind. Um, and so I wanted to hear a little bit about that and, um, you know, maybe if there's one lesson that you could take away from each of those experiences, what would they oh, be? Oh. Or is there too many? <laughs> no, the, when you say one lesson, I, I, it's, it's glaringly obvious what the lessons are and, and not necessarily easy ones to, to have learnt either. <laughs> so I haven't told many people this, but now that I'm telling you, I'm also telling the whole world this. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is my chance to reveal this hidden, hidden story. But um, I, I was the biggest um, cool house you know, groupie that existed, <laughs> that, I, that I knew of, you know. There's a lot out there. There's a lot out there, <laughs> yeah. But, but this was, I guess, in the mid-90s, yeah, 96, 97. And um, for obvious reasons, you know, the pure kind of contextually driven, hyper-rational, you know, work, uh, not necessarily driven by aesthetics, although there was obviously a hidden agenda. So that was the firm to work for. But prior to getting in there, I, I, I got a stint at... at at um, Liebeskins, who in his own right is a genius, an mm. artist, uh, and, and so, so creative. Um, so I, I, I landed up at the office, and this is the lesson I learned the very hard way. Well, the end of the story is I was fired very quickly into that, into that uh, internship, and this is the reason why. So I went there kind of uh, naive, thinking that design was what everyone lived and breathed, and that would be the ultimate decision-making uh, barometer for everything, uh, not knowing naively that there were also other things like politics and 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 you know and seniority and, and etc. So um, I, I got there and I was assigned a project, and I was very enthusiastic about trying to make it better, and I unwittingly stepped on someone very senior's toes in the result as a result uh, because my my suggestions kind of ran contrary to to this person's. Preferences, but I thought, you know, it's active, open debate. You know, there's no, there's no hierarchy here. Let me just tell you what I think. <laughs> and the net result was, um, they told me not to come into the office on Monday. <laughs> I, I, I still remember. I, I took this phone call from a phone booth outside my little rental apartment in, in Berlin, uh, and called the office, and they said. Um, I'm sorry, uh, but we've decided not to continue your, your employment. So I was like, I was at wit's end, right? What am I going to do now? Gosh. But after a series of really... So the lesson there was, it's not just about design. Mm. <laughs> it's about people. Yeah. Yeah, and that lesson is more important than I could even ever have imagined, especially now running our own firm. Yeah. Right? It's really about people and how to ne negotiate and navigate and... and um, find your way around these, these issues. But uh, through a series of calls um, and through some really good friends that I had, I landed uh, a replacement job at uh, OMA that very same period. Oh, so wow. I, I hopped cities to Rotterdam and wow, it was fantastic. I mean, I was, my immediate superior was Joshua Ramos Prince, who's, you know, the principal at Rex. 
um, across from me was uh, Bjarke Ingels, you know. Oh my gosh. Uh, everyone very young and, and scruffy <laughs> at, that, at that point. Wow. Yeah. Of course, uh, now in saying that, I, 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 uh, am, I, I wish I was as successful as, as these guys are, <laughs> but, you know, clearly they have really catapulted into, into such fame and, and success. Uh, it's really great for them. But the lesson I learned there was. Uh, we, I mean, when design pushes you to attain greater heights, uh, I think that's really great. But there's also the notion of how sustainable your trajectory and pursuit of it is. And I, I kind of learned that if you want to be in the design game for the long term, then you need to pace yourself and you can't, you can't keep going at a pace where you, you eventually just burn out. And um, I think we were working hours which I realized in the long term were not really sustainable. And so I made a little mental note to myself if I ever had the chance to be in a position where I could influence other people's sort of work environment. And then eventually, you know, we, we do have MOD, so we, we, we have that scenario. I would try and have a more balanced lifestyle, you know, so people would be highly creative, recharged, rested. Um, and be able to run that race uh, till the very end, and not sort of burn out halfway and be jaded or, or be or be spent. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice, actually. Thank you for sharing. I feel like I'm your therapist this afternoon, <laughs> yeah. unloading secrets. <laughs> I know, Susie. What are you going to make me say next? You know. <laughs> Well, my next question is about the, the role that you had at the National University of Singapore, because I believe that there was a period of time that you served as their A design and architecture critic. Yes. Um, and I wanted to ask you specifically about criticism within mm. the design and architecture field and, and, and whether you think, or what the state of that is at the moment, whether you think that there's enough of it. Mm. Um, so I feel like, in my opinion, there's, there's a lot of... Um, sort of sycophants, you know, an architect mm. will do something and it's wonderful regardless of what it is because it was yes. done by somebody. Yes. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on the role of criticism and... Yeah. Well, that's a very salient question that you, you pose, an observation because um, the general media, the commentaries, you know, when a piece of work isn't great but it's still lauded as so, uh, Usually comes because comes about because people have been engineered or they've been sort of socialized to read quality and value, um, not in intrinsically on its own, but because it's been produced by a certain studio or house or hand, right? So brand, it's about branding, and it's a double-edged sword because yes, of course, everyone wants to be to attain a certain level of. Uh, acclaim, where your work then is exists on a, on a higher plane, but when when the work begins to not be able to support the brand that it's that it that generates it, then one has to be critical. And I think the criticality shouldn't be the responsibility of the media per se, but it should be the responsibility of the brand keeper. So if I was uncomfortable or unhappy with something my studio um, was generating, I really a, should make some effort to correct it, make it better, or or not um, not posit it and, and flaunt it as if it was the best work ever. You know, so there's that self-censoring, that self-criticality, I think, that needs to come into play. But on the other hand, when it comes to the notion of 
criticality as a whole, because I've got one foot in academia, not just from the past, but also I, I'm returning to teaching in the coming semester at, at the University of Singapore, National University of Singapore. Um, I find that there's a huge disparity between two sort of ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, you have this rather maybe a little bit more less, less critical, a little bit more indulgent um, coverage that sort of general media does. And then on the other hand, you have very, you have very esoteric kind of critical thought and thinking that exists only in the, in the academic circles. And neither, well, we can understand why both exist, but neither are immensely helpful in the end. Uh, and some kind of, not a happy medium, but I think are striving towards balancing uh, your, your criticality and finding a way to talk about it that doesn't sort of exclude or, or mystify most people. Neither mm. does it dumb, downplay and, and um, sort of overly pedestrianize the nature of design. I think we need to find that middle ground. But it's hard because either people want sound bites or they want something that is so, um, that is so in-depth that it requires a lot of a priori knowledge to even decipher. And that gives you a sense of, you know, being part of a club that only understands something because you, you understand the jargon or the, or the lingo or the language. And that makes people feel good about themselves. So I think that's intentionally done as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah that's, you've raised a really good point there. I think there is a certain kind of language that is used particularly by architectural academia, uh, academia or mm. academics that is not necessarily fruitful for good conversations with the public. And I think it's really important that the general public be able to have a discourse about architecture and the built environment. Yes. And they, I, I feel like, I, I'm assuming that a lot of people don't feel that they have the ability to have those kinds of conversations. Yes, beyond stylistic ones. Mm, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. yeah. Something that's a bit more in depth. And that also has been, in terms of just the practicality of running a firm, has been, a, has been one of our greatest challenges because when we decided in the early days that we wouldn't necessarily commit to a aesthetic preference slavishly because we thoroughly believed that there was the sort of proper response depending on where, when, and who for the project was you know, um, tailored to then there, there could not be a one-size-fits-all solution, aesthetically at least. Uh, not to mention, obviously, so many other factors that go into design beyond aesthetics. Um, it's been hard to then educate the clientele that we have on who we actually are. Because if you're the curves guy, or you are the, <laughs> yeah. you are the you know, bamboo, uh, green, plant, tropical guy, or you're the, you know, it's easy, right? It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's an easy sell. It's an easy or clear sell. And that's, yeah. in a way, that's smart, but that's not what we're about. So it's taken more time yeah, to do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that, that actually kind of leads quite nicely to my next question. Um, because you describe your ethos or your approach um, quite simply, actually, and, and you've, there's a couple of words that you use, which is question, disturb, and refine. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and yeah. how, how did that kind of come to be, 
to be the manifesto, yeah. I suppose, for Ministry of Design? It's a, it's a great... Thanks for asking me that question, because I, I love sort of, you know, remembering the trajectory for this. And again, although there is, there is an arc, it wasn't so linear. Um, just to dig a little deeper back, when I was when I returned from from the stint abroad, and there's this strong yearning to be back in Singapore for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and when I when I did return, I, I ended up teaching at the university, but not so much just teaching. I was also doing research, uh, as as um, in light of eventually becoming a full time academic. So I was you know working towards a PhD. I had a research topic. I was I was investigating the nature of design pedagogy. Can it be taught? Um, is it inherent? How do you teach it if, if it can be taught? Uh, and there was no inkling or desire even to establish a practice at all, or let alone return to the practice. I was quite happy in the in the environment actually. Um, and then one day, this was on the cusp of almost formalizing um, a PhD stint at, at MIT. And we were preparing to, to get ready to go. Uh, I met through a very close friend of mine, uh, my, who, a person who turned out to be my first client, uh, uh, Lolik Ping. And at that point in time, Singapore, the design scene was very nascent. They were the typical big players for hotels and lifestyle brands, but there's nothing niche. Not really. Uh, there's nothing that you could call truly design-spirited or even locally-driven design. And this was in maybe 2004, 2003, 2004. And um, so I met Ping, and it was over a very simple, humble meal at my, my tiny apartment at that point in time. Uh, we were staying in, in this HDB apartment, which we had obviously poured a lot of heart and soul into to, to re redesign. Uh, and he was quite taken in by it. You know, he thought, oh, this is, this is interesting. This is a bit out of the box. Um, and four months later, he called and said, well, I, I have this project, and would you be interested to work on it? And, you know, Susie, the project we're talking about, it's the one we're sitting in right now, the, the, what was formerly the new Majestic Hotel. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he had just acquired the property. It was already a hotel, but a very sort of nondescript uh, uh, lightless rooms in some cases and a, and a Chinese restaurant downstairs and he said would you like to work on it and I was like yeah hobby you know I'll, I'll, I'll do my NUS stuff in the day and I'll do this at night why not you know it'd be fun uh, and he said are you kidding I mean this is a serious you know undertaking you have to if you want to do this you've got to do this so I said what do you mean he says well you've got to p commit to this full time and I was it was a real difficult choice to make because you know the academic route although it wasn't easy necessarily to research it was stable and it was interesting and you didn't have to do, deal with things like clients and <laughs> other, <laughs> other challenges That's like the that truth. You, you know how that goes yeah. uh, and I was, enjoying, I was enjoying the teaching parts especially so um, but I talked about it uh, with, with my wife Joy and we said you know uh, this is a chance in a lifetime. Why don't you do this? You're still relatively young, and if it doesn't work out, you can just come back to academia. So I, I quit the NUS, and I, my boss then, who's very kind, he said to me, the dean of architecture, you know, Colin, when you arrived four years ago at our doorstep, I kind of knew that you were essentially just a designer waiting <laughs> to fly the coup. 
<laughs> so he's like, take off, young one. So, so he, he gave me his blessings, and I started this. And um, accelerate uh, or fast forward through one and a half years of design, another you know, months of construction. And at the opening of the, of the hotel, there are only 31 rooms, all rather strange and infused with art from local Singaporean artists, very odd typologies. I was very driven to find new hotel room typologies, and we came up with a whole bunch of really interesting ones that were inspired by the context of the neighborhood. And I wanted to do a media kit to give out to the media. I, I guess I, I, I was very excited to tell the story of the hotel. And I came up with these, you know, in the old days, you would hang these uh, do not disturb signs yeah. on yeah. your room door. So I, I quite liked the idea of doing a, so I did a press kit that was um, a, a cardboard cutout of uh, a hanging sign. And there was a CD disc in it with, you know, information and photos and all that. But on the on the front of it, instead of saying, do not disturb, it said, please disturb design. Oh. So I was like kind of wanting to just rift off the typical, you know, convention of the hotel signage, do not disturb, to be, please disturb. And then I thought, disturb's actually quite a strong term. Uh, and if we, if, we, if we put that in our sort of DNA of whatever we were doing, and then already I had incorporated Ministry of Design, it was just a one-man firm at that stage. Um, you know, maybe that would help us sort out the clients who really wanted to work with us and those who, who really shouldn't be working with us because, you know, they were not interested in doing this. So the mantra then became question. So ask the deep questions about convention. Why does convention exist the way it does and does it need to evolve? Because time progresses and one needs to find new ways to do all things. Uh, to disturb it through design and then to finally end up with something that's redefined. So question, disturb, and redefine, QDR. So that's, that's where it came from. Mm, that's yeah. a great story. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward, you know, I don't know how many years since then. How, how many staff have you got with you at the moment? So it's been 15 years. Since uh, that project yeah, completed. That project. Okay. Yeah. And we are now um, 30 plus. Okay. Uh, we hover, we've ho been hovering at this number just a little less, a little more for the last maybe three years now. It seems to be a good number uh, to be at because it allows us to do both smaller but also much larger projects. And right. we have um, a presence in uh, three different cities. Singapore is right. our base. Yep. And then we have a presence in KL, Kuala Lumpur, and also in Beijing to right. support our sort of greater China work. Right, which you know leads me to wonder how on earth you manage all of that. I mean, you actually raised that question yourself earlier with, in regards to your own team and um, you know the psychological pressures that we've all been under this year. Yeah. But to stay creative while running a business <laughs> across three cities, which are culturally quite different, yes. um, and with clients in each of those places and projects mm -hmm. probably much further afield than that even, how, how do you balance all of that and how do you continue <laughs> to question, disturb and redefine? Yeah. Where, do you, where do you find the, where do you find the energy? Oh my goodness, that's, a, that's, such, a, that's such a great question. I, I think you really, your second career should, should be as a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to sit on the couch in the corner and, and tell you, every, spill my guts out. So, yeah. Just um, wait till I ply you with alcohol and then it gets dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, it is... Uh, 6 p.m. somewhere in the world, so we can start drinking. Ah, <laughs> I like that. Um, well, 
the, the short answer, well, there's a short answer and a long answer. I mean, the short answer is I'm on my knees praying a lot because it's a, it's a difficult task. I mean, it's not just the creative momentum that needs to be kept up. To live up to the mantra of QDR requires commitment because we almost never recycle. We always push a new limit for whichever project we're working on, whether it's a small uh, innovation or a large one. But yeah, it, it's not just the creative momentum, but it's also the financial burden, you know, and care for all the staff and making sure that you have enough to feed everybody and, and keep the work going. And honestly, I would be kept up at night if I, if I didn't believe that it was some higher power that was <sighs> guiding this. And I'm just, I'm, just, uh, um, I'm just kind of the vessel, you know? And the word minister, the name Ministry of Design, I mean, it's kind of funny, right? It's in Singapore, so it's, you know, <laughs> Ministry of Everything here. I was actually surprised they let us register that name. Yeah, I, yeah. I was quite shocked as well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I did meet a bloke who was really mad at me at this design event. He came up to me, he stormed up, and he said, hey, I'm kind of not happy with you. I'd never met him before, by the way. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> and um, he said, I tried to register Ministry of Design a few years ago, but the government said no. Yeah, and so you've got it. You know, I'm really mad. And, and uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, he was jesting, obviously, but uh. the government has, you know, relaxed their rules and okay. so they let us do it. But the other reason is because I feel that um, the design skill set is a gift, a divine gift, and it's a ministry to exercise to make the world a better place. So besides being on my knees a lot, the practical things I do, um, I think my partner, uh, my first partner at the, the, at the start was Joy. Uh, and unlike the typical architectural partnership where two super creative architects come together, uh, Joy is not an architect and she's a business person uh, you know, who was trained and worked in, in the corporate scene for quite a while. And I think she brought in a level of organization and order to what would be a fairly <laughs> chaotic world, as right, you know, yeah, right, as, yeah. a, as, a, as a creative yourself. Um, so she brought that in. And also that the, the other quick, the thing that I, I was quick to realize was where I wasn't strong. And there's so many areas that I know I am very capable and maybe exceed you know, other people's abilities, but there's so many areas where I am hopeless. And, and, and if you gave me a task to do it in that category of things, I would fail terribly. So the other lesson was surround yourself by people who are much better than you. And so I think that's what we have, we have strived to do. Uh, we have now, from two directors, we have, we have four of us because we are um, very actively grooming the second generation for succession planning. Uh, we have seen too many examples of you know, uh, owner-driven boutique firms where the legacy sort of just ends with them. We're not interested in that. It's not called Colinsia Design, and, mm. and for good reason, because it sounds terrible anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sia and Sons. <laughs> MOD is very mysterious. I think it's, yeah, it works well. It works better. Yeah, it works better. Um, but that's great advice, though. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe most business people would probably recognise, even if it's just in hindsight, that you do need to surround yourself with people that are really good at the things that you're not very good yeah. at. Um, and how lucky are you two that you balance each other out in that way? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really thought, taught us how to fight well because I mean, we basically spend, John and myself, we spend every minute together. I mean, we, we, we have 
our friends are mutual. Obviously, we are very involved in church stuff and then the work and you know the home. So, uh, it's taught us how to negotiate because we are quite different. Uh, we're similar, but also very very different. And and I think I, the same can be said for a lot of our other colleagues. They are all similar in their drive for excellence to QDR, but they're all different because mm. they're 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 like the, the assembly of you know, a bunch of superheroes. They all have their own skills and strengths and we celebrate that. And so I've been consciously in the last three to four years prior um, taken on a design directorial role rather than a design role. Uh, and it's been great. It's been super satisfying to see uh, so many talented designers, you know, rise to the, the fore. And, and that is Amodina. It's it's not me at all. Mm. Yeah, maybe the mouthpiece, but it's certainly not me. Yeah, I think that's important to recognise that no one can do. You know, the the output that you have. You know, no one person can do that, and it is important to recognise yeah. that there's always a team behind, uh, right? Yes, behind absolutely. Every, every good thing, yeah. Yeah. So we we talked about the Cure Project before, and I'm I'm sort of going back to that because mm. I want to ask you about what's next. So you know I've seen you design products, um, jewelry, even hotels, residences. <laughs> you know a lot of typologies, yes. a lot of different scales. Yeah. What what's left? What's next? What's <laughs> left? What what is a dream project for you? What have you not done that you really want to do? Right. Oh, wow. We could, this could go on for hours, but <laughs> um, I think. I'm really thankful that one thing that has remained consistent through the years has been whether the projects have been small or large, whether they've been, you know, uh, moderate in budget or or very very um, very generous budget-wise, they've all been still basically steeped in the desire to question the system really fine. And and whatever client comes to us, like for instance, in terms of trajectory, we started off doing really niche boutique hotels, right? New Majestic, and then the McAllister Mansion, View, uh, and then where, where do you go from there next? If we went to the mainstream hotel route and were asked to do very vanilla brands, I think it would have killed our spirit. And thankfully, we've managed to break into um, the next tier of work in terms of scale and, and also quality. Uh, but still get the same kind of projects, essential same kind of projects. So when we work with um, mainstream brands, we're often given the soft brands, the ones which are still sort of slightly undefined, as opposed to the very, very clear brands. So we're working on uh, a luxury collection for the Marriott. Um, incredible clients, super rigorous and disciplined. We're learning a lot from them. Uh, so we're, we're working on uh, a luxury collection. We're working on a standard hotel, Ooh. yeah, <laughs> which uh, you know, which is very exciting because you know what does the standard, what does it mean in our tropical uh, or Asian context, right? And mm. outside of the North American context, which where it's where where it was born. So that's really exciting. And these brands are all, I mean, they're all up there. Uh, but they all have the same DNA. So we're so thankful that what we love to do and what we're good at doing, there exists a market for it. Because you could mm. you know, love to do something so obscure, but this is no one who wants work like that. So yeah. we're really thankful for that. So there's that. And recently we thought you know, hotels would be our thing. 
Uh, and we're also doing an Indigo resort in Tayan, the full master plan and architecture and interiors uh, for a very large hot springs hotel. Um, it comes on the back of doing a ski resort for Marriott also, the mm. brand Tribute, um, and um, a mountain resort for, for Indigo in Alishan in, in Taiwan. So all really nice sites. And wow. I miss travel, you know. Oh. I, I miss getting out there and seeing these sites. Yeah. Uh, and most recently, which was a very unusual turn because we never expected this because we thought we would almost, because of our branding and our mantra and our, and our portfolio, obviously, we would not necessarily be highly attractive to more sort of mainstream luxury brands. So we were pleasantly surprised earlier this year, or actually really late last year, late December, early Jan, when we received an invitation from Citibank, uh, their global headquarters in New York, to join a, a competition wow. uh, for the sort of wealth management center, which is their global largest wealth management center by size, uh, which is located in Singapore along Orchard Road. And at first we were like wondering whether they had called the wrong company because you know, <laughs> 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 the typical kind of standard right. luxury they were, they were interested mm. in. We thought, why would they come to us? And they came to us because they were also seeking to QDR their own perception of what wealth management was, which I thought for a corporation of their s scale and, and uh, how established they were was incredibly noteworthy and admirable. And so we jumped at the chance and we said, yes, we will do this. I went to the site. It was it's a gorgeous site and the concept was for a a banking conservatory, banking in a garden, wow. yeah, which was really hard to execute. And we worked with super talented uh, fellow consultants, uh, ICN, the landscape uh, consultant, uh, who did also, you know, ex help execute the jewel uh, project. Mm. And so they worked with us on it, and it turned out smashing. And we realized, hey, you know, when we put our minds to it, we can find that delicate balance between innovation and and saying up yours to convention but in a way that would be acceptable to more than just that niche market that we thought we would appeal to only mm. so i think that's for us that's the next step that's where we're headed okay next, yeah well i'm excited to see what's next and i <laughs> i think i think i'm allowed to say that there is a ministry of design project coming up in our next print issue i think i'm allowed to say oh, that it's official so yay. we're excited to be able to share that <laughs> all right i'm 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 very excited to see yeah that. I mean, we've been huge admirers of of uh your your, your title and it's exquisite you thank know? you that, yeah that means a lot it's so well um conceived and it's such a considered approach and I think you stand for something. And it's not easy doing that, is it? Because they're precious to sort of represent everything, but mm. you stand for something clear. I love that. Thank you. That really means a lot. That's really great. And yeah, it, thanks again for agreeing to <laughs> your therapy session today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. It's always a pleasure. But yeah, mm. I hope to be able to chat with you guys again soon. So for sure. Take care. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>